Hey guys, it's so good to be back with you. I want you to know that. And if I've never met you or this is your first time watching, I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. And for those of you who kind of dial in, tune in on a regular basis, I've been away about five weeks and it's good to be back. My wife and I went away for a little bit, but as I've shared with the campus here, I've been on kind of a journey of my own, a little physical journey. And so it's been kind of an interesting, challenging journey. I uh, feel like we're pointed in a good direction, very optimistic, hopeful, got some good doctors and uh, getting some answers. So thank you for those of you who told me you're praying and sent me some emails. And uh, thank you for those of you who will begin praying now as we just continue on this journey. But uh, it's good to be back. I'm excited next week. I want to start a conversation with you. Uh, calm in an anxious world. Man, that sounds relevant, doesn't it? Calm in an anxious world. I don't know if you struggle with anxiety. know people that do struggle with anxiety. Anxiety shows up in worry shows up in anger, all kinds of things. Our world is anxious. And how in the world do you and I experience a gospel-centered, Christ-centered calm in an anxious world? Tune in, and I'd love for you to invite somebody to join you, send it to somebody, let somebody else know about it. Today, what I want to do is finish up our conversation on 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to this troubled church, right? He's addressing all these problems, and we've delved into some deep, deep things that he's talked about here. Today, I want to put a bow on it by going back to chapter 9. So grab your Bible, go there, chapter 9, and look at some pastoral concluding remarks. Coming out of chapter 9, I think it's an appropriate way to end this series. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians 9 is where I want to start, and then I want to pray with you, and then we're going to dig in. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, here's what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, they go into strict training. They do it to get a crown that's not going to last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air, shadow boxing. No, I strike a blow to my body. I make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Will you guys pray with me? Because Father, you've heard us already in our worship. Now we desire to hear from you, from your word. These people, they quite frankly don't need to hear from a 56-year-old bald pastor, but we yearn to hear from an eternal, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Please speak to us from your word and point us to your son, Jesus, for the sake of your glory and for the good of your gospel. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Stephen Ambrose wrote a book, Nothing Like It in the World, in which he recounts the incredible feat of the building of the transcontinental Railroad. It was considered probably the greatest engineering feat in the 19th century. Ambrose wrote in his book, and I quote, he said this, the railroad took brains and muscle and sweat in quantities and scope never before put into a single project. Ambrose describes the moment when construction was uh, ready to begin on this project. And as they were beginning to think about the beginning of this project, the idea came to some prominent people, particularly on the West Coast, to have a ceremony or a celebration for the laying of the first rail and the driving of the first spike. 
And so they begin to plan for this and invite others. One of the people they invited was maybe the most important or maybe prominent backer in California whose name was Collis Huntington. And when they invited him to the celebration of the laying of the first rail and the driving of the first spike, Collis Huntington refused. And he sent his rejection by way of telegram, and this is what he said, and I quote, If you want to jubilate or celebrate over driving the first spike, you go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there look too ugly. We might fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know it as we can. Then he says this, and the point of today, anyone can drive the first spike, but there are months of labor and unrest between the first and the last spike. Huntington was not romanced by first spike celebrations, but he was more interested in a last spike celebration. I don't even think about it's not, but in our culture, we love first spike celebrations. We love to throw a party for the beginning of things. And quite frankly, the beginning of things many times is easy. For instance, it's easy to start something. It's far different to complete something. For those of us who are husbands, man, I was the greatest husband you know on the honeymoon. But it is a far different thing to be the greatest husband after 62 years of marriage through good and bad, rich and poor, sickness and health. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's easy to start a job. It is a different deal to complete a project. It's easy to start a season. Some of your athletes, it's easy to start a season. It's a different thing to complete the season well. It's easy to hold a baby. Everybody Googles and goggles and love a baby. It is a far different thing to raise a child. It's easy to start a race, but it is a different thing to run that race and finish it well. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, is addressing first spike Christians, but instead of using a railroad analogy, he's using racing as his primary analogy and then boxing as his secondary it makes me think of uh, this idea when he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? That word race, stadia, we get our word stadium, but only one gets the prize. Obviously, Paul didn't grow up in the day when they gave out participation ribbons. That's a whole different conversation, right? But it makes me think to myself of when I entered a race, the race was the Whiskey Rebellion. And I remember it's the only race I've ever entered and ran in that had any competition or any order or, or organization to it. And I remember there were some things that were odd about it. One is I had to pay to run. That seems weird to me. I'm not somebody who likes to run. I had to pay to enter the race. And I'm like, who in their right mind would pay to run? But I did. And I remember I went to the starting uh, place and I registered and I paid and I got my number and then they gave me all this merchandise. I got a t-shirt, I got a water bottle, I got all these things and I thought, I haven't even run an inch. And I got all, I almost like got rewarded for signing up for the race. Paul says, this is a different kind of race because he said, one, gets the prize. I want you to run to get the prize. Don't, don't run to get the merchandise just signing up for the race. I want you to run in such a way to get the prize. Now listen close. Paul was saying the Christian life is a race you don't pay to run. Somebody else paid for you to run. Somebody else paid the entry fee. 
That's the gospel. Jesus Christ gave his life to pay the penalty and the price for your sin. Jesus paid the price for your forgiveness. Jesus paid the price for you to become part of the family of God. Jesus paid a price that has a forever guarantee. Here's what I want you to know. The minute you say yes to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You have a seat in the family of God and it is forever. And the moment you say yes to Jesus as your savior and as your Lord, you enter this thing called the race, the Christian life. Paul is saying this, the difference between somebody who is a fan of Jesus, I like Jesus, and a follower of Jesus is the way they run the race. Paul is saying this, that it's easy to become a Christian, it's a different thing to be a Christian. He's saying this, that it's easy to say yes to Jesus as my savior, it is another thing to say yes every day for the rest of my life to him as Lord. Followers of Jesus run in such a way as to get the prize. That is the crux of this passage. And, and here's what that means. The prize is running in such a way that I become more like the Jesus who ran ahead of me that I run until I run into the arms of the Jesus who's waiting for me to cross the finish line. And when I cross the finish line, the, the prize is to become more like Jesus, to run into the arms of Jesus and hear him say, not great start, but well done. That's the prize. Now, the church of Corinth, sports nuts. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, they like sports. Uh, here's what you need to know. It's just interesting. Uh, they would have gotten the analogies because uh, really big deal sports were to them. Uh, they had two different games. I mean, there was more than this going on, but really big to them every four years, the Olympics, right? The Olympics, and, and they, they would have uh, known that every four years, athletes would have trained. This would have been in their day and age, beginning in about 776 BC, and uh, uh, there would have been a five-day event, would have started day one with a ceremony, and they, the athletes would have taken their oath and all of that stuff. On day two, sacrifices, after the sacrifices were made, the announcer would have announced the athletes to everybody. And then what would have happened on day two is there would have been things like horse racing and the pentathlon and things like that. Day three, the boys would have competed. Day four, there would have been foot racing and jumping and boxing and wrestling and things like that. And then day five, final sacrifices and rewards. Every four years, the Olympics. But in particular, this church that he's writing to would have known the Olympics every four years, but they would have known something even closer to them that had almost the same popularity, and that was the Isthmian Games. An Isthmus, uh, Corinth is on an Isthmus, right? And so uh, you can look that up in your geography book, right? But, but they would have the Isthmian Games, and they would have been every two years. Every two years they would have had these games and had almost the same popularity where they would have gone there in droves. And so when Paul is making these analogies that following Jesus is like running a race, it's like boxing, their mind would have went there to the games. Olympic games, Isthmian games. The question it begs for today that, that I'm glad you're joining me for, that as a follower of Jesus, how do you and I run well? How do you and I finish well? And I think Paul gives us a couple pastoral observations. 
if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I would write down. If we're gonna run well, first thing, I have five things. First thing, keep your eye on the prize. I think that's what he's saying. He says, run in such a way to get the prize. I think it's interesting that here's what he says. He says, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't live my life aimlessly. That's what he's saying. Just think about this. An athlete trains and competes with his eye or her eye on the goal, on the prize. They, they run to win. They play to win. They want to win. They compete to win. <laughs> Some of you... Uh, know and probably remember this guy. His name is Herm Edwards. He was coach of the New York Jets. And in 2002, it's been 20 years, imagine that, uh, his Jets were having a dismal season. Some of you may remember, you're old enough to remember this. But, but uh, after the game, I think they had lost, he has to meet with the press and they're asking him questions. And, you know, sometimes the question is like, oh man, it's so obvious. And, and he, he gave this little speech, this little statement that went viral. He said, and I quote, he said, that's what's great about sports. You play to win the game. And then he said, hello. <laughs> I love that. You play to win the game. You don't just play to play it. That's the great thing, you play to win. He said, you play to win the game. That's kind of what Paul's saying. He says, you run to win the prize. Paul loves sports analogies. And in fact, in Philippians 3, another book that Paul wrote, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I'm pressing on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He said, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, this one thing I do, uh, D.L. Moody said it this way, this one thing I do, not these many things I dabble in. When you have a goal, you don't run aimlessly dabbling in many things, you focus in on the one thing. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying this one thing I do, I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm straining towards what's ahead and I press on toward the goal, circle that in your Bibles, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Uh, that word goal is the Greek word skopos. You can write that down somewhere, it's interesting to me. It's the Greek word skopos, and it literally for the runner would have been uh, a, a square pillar at the end of the race that the runner would have fixed their eyes on so they would have known where to run, how to run in the straightest line to stay in line with their goal. That's what Paul is saying. I want to, this one thing I do, I'm focused, I'm pressing, I got my eyes on the goal so that I can with intentionality run the race of my life. Paul says, for you and I to run well, we have to make the intentional decision that we're not gonna run or live our life aimlessly. Can we just be honest? Can we just be honest? Isn't it true that we fritter a lot of our time away? <laughs> like sometimes it's because we are aimless. We wake up and we have no goal for the day. We have no goal for the week. We have no goals for the month. We have no goal for the year. And before you know it, we're living an aimless life. I think it was Zig Ziglar said this, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And some of us are hitting our goal every time because we have no aim. And it's so easy when you have no aim to just fritter your life away, to get caught dabbling in many things and lose what the most important things are. I was reading statistics, and this is just interesting to me, that the average American last year spent more than 1,300 hours on social media. That averages out to a little over three and a half hours a day, Forbes magazine said. 
According to insider intelligence studies, say that the average American will spend just over three hours a day watching TV. You add the two together, you have six and a half hours a day. Uh, the point is this, you know this, I don't need to make the point for this, we can live a lot, maybe you're doing this, maybe this is where you're at, we can live our lives aimlessly without any focus. Like, it's e isn't it easy to lose our focus? And, and we can live without a goal, and Paul says, not me, I want to run with my eye on the prize, with my eye on the goal, I know where I'm pressing, I got my eye right there. In an athlete's life, the goal, the prize, is what causes them to live different, they think different, they train different, they eat different, they sleep different. The goal is what tells the athlete what to do and what not to do. The athlete isn't blown about by different fads, isn't pressured by peer pressure, but it's the goal that determines their priorities, even determines their passions. And what Paul says, do you see this? He says, for the athletes, and they would have, they do it to get a crown that won't last. Now, now this is just interesting, like if, if you like history, this Greek word crown is the Greek word stephanos. You can forget that, but it literally means a wreath, which, which they would have, like a, a crown, a wreath that they would have crowned the winner with. Like in the Olympic Games, this is interesting to me, but in the Olympic Games, uh, the gold medal winner, the winner, might have gotten a crown of olive leaves and twigs that were woven together. Or, or even better yet, uh, they might have got a crown of wilted celery. <laughs> yeah, so imagine that. The, the national anthem plays, and here's your wilted celery. You know, you won the games. You get a lettuce on your head, right? Like It's like, right, but that was the crown. Uh, in the Isthmian Games, it maybe is a little better, I don't know, but they would get a crown or a wreath around their head of pine needles, uh, pine branches, Christmas tree, right? Like, hey, gold medal winner, Christmas tree on my head. Yeah. And so uh, they would win and they would uh, work hard and they would train in order to get these crowns that didn't last forever. And the way it would work is this, when an athlete won, there would be this parade, and, and they would get acknowledgement that lasted for, you know, a while. And they would literally march to the temple of Zeus. And there in the temple of Zeus, there would have been judges. And these judges would have stood on platforms called the, ready? Bema, Bema, write that down. Bema, B-E-M-A, Tos, T-O-S. The Bema Tos. And it's on those platforms, those judgment seats, where they would have handed out their rewards. For the athlete, it had been the greatest day in their life. I got the salary on my head. I'm getting all this recognition, at least for a moment, at least for this year, that eventually would evaporate over time. I mean, the same is true today. Somebody wins a gold medal. They don't get salary on their head. National Anthem plays. They get a medal that lasts longer than salary for sure right? But it tarnishes over time. They get fame that evaporates eventually. Yeah, let me prove it to you. In the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, there were 17 world records that were broken. Can you name any? And can you name any of the people who did it? See what I mean? Uh, you're like, I'm not really an Olympic guy. Well, uh, the Super Bowl is the most watched sport sporting event in America. Uh, let me ask you this real quick, off the top of your head, who won the Super Bowl last year? Right? Who was the MVP? 
uh, you're, some of you are football fanatics, so you're like, that was easy. Well, then go two years back. Who won that Super Bowl and who was that MVP? How quickly we forget. Uh, even go back to your high school days. Who, when you were a senior in high school, won the conference basketball championship your senior year? Like most of us, I don't even know if I could tell you who the teams were in our conference anymore. You see, here's the point. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. I love football. I love sports. I played sports. Nothing wrong. What he's saying is athletes will work really, really hard for these rewards that fade and this acknowledgement that evaporates. But he says most of us are not professional athletes. Most of us are not Olympic athletes. But the truth is, we're living our lives really hard for crowns that fade and for notoriety that evaporates. For some of us, we have put so much time in investing time into gathering riches that are eventually going to rot. To somehow gaining fame that's going to evaporate over time. We just want to be noticed, most popular kid in school, whatever it might be. Uh, To get titles that our kids could care less about. You see what I'm saying? To, to accumulate material things that eventually are going to rust or break. You see, here's what Paul says, no, no. But we do it to get a, what? Crown that will last forever. Paul wants you to know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says this in his second letter to this church. In his second letter, chapter 5, you can write this down, verse 10. He says that all of us are going to stand before our own bematos, like those athletes. But there's going to be one judge, not not several judges, one judge. And that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're home in the body, living, or away from it, we've died, we must all appear before the judgment seat, bemotas, of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul says we will stand before the one who died in our place someday. And that influenced him today. And there is some sense of reward. And that reward comes in the way of more responsibility. We're not gonna be playing harps in heaven and just sitting around doing nothing. It's not the way it works in the new heaven and the new earth. But, 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 but to those who've been faithful with little, there's opportunity to be faithful with much. And there's obviously some tangible rewards. There's some indication that, that, that we throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus in, in this act of worship. In fact, the Bible, this is an interesting uh, discussion. There are different crowns in the Bible. Uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking to this church and he says, hey, what is my glory, my hope, and my joy. What is my crown of joy? He says, and then he looks at the people and says, is it not you? His crown literally were the people that he invited into a relationship with Jesus and that he influenced in their relationship with Jesus. There was a sense to which his crown of joy was the people who either came to know Christ or were following Christ more intimately because of his influence in their life. Uh, in James 1, there's the crown of life that James is saying to people who are under severe, severe trial that the crown of life is for those who persevere and stand the test under trial. Uh, Many of us have no inkling of this, but uh, I was on a website, the Esther Project, and I think it's uh, 322 Christians killed each month 
That is a recent update. Like we don't know much about that at this point in our history because uh, there are 60 plus countries where there is persecution upon Christians either by the government or their neighbors because of their faith. And so he says the crown of life. Uh, the same guy writing Corinthians, crown of righteousness at the end of his life, he says there is a crown of righteousness. I'm finishing my race. I fought the good fight. And there is a crown of righteousness awaiting me. And it's awaiting not just me, but everybody, here's what it says, who longs for the appearing of Jesus. Love that. And then there seems to be this crown of glory. And he writes this to shepherds of the flock of Jesus. And he says, those who shepherd the flock and who do a good job of loving and leading the flock of Jesus, there's this crown of glory. Now, here's the deal. There's, there certainly is... Uh, this reward of more responsibility. There's this tangible reward. There, but, but at minimum, at minimum, becoming like Jesus, the one who ran ahead of me until I run into the arms of the Jesus who's waiting for me at the finish line and the, the reward of hearing him say, not good start, but well done, well done, is part of the crown. The, 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 there is nothing that can take that away. And then I think Paul would say, standing with those who I've had the opportunity to influence and invite to a relationship with Jesus is part of the reward. Eyes on the prize, but I think here's the second thing, trained to win. Athletes who have their eye on the prize don't just show up on game day and expect to win. You don't begin preparing for the game on the day of the game. You don't start thinking about the day of the game. You don't start preparing to win on the day of the game. The planning, listen, the planning and the preparation happen outside of the public eye, far away from any applause or notoriety. There is a strict training that takes place for those who want to win the prize. So that's what... Paul says, he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Uh, this word's interesting. Uh, it's the word, another way to translate over is temperance, uh, self-control. Uh, you know what that is? It's the ability, ready, to say no in order to say yes. It's the ability to say no in order to say yes. Uh, that's why Paul goes on to say this. I strike a blow to my body and I make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's saying, uh, my body isn't, I don't listen to what my body's, I tell my body what to do. Uh, my body wants to have ice cream. Uh, my body wants to sleep into 9.30. My body wants to sit and veg and watch, you know, whatever. That's what my, but he says, instead, I tell my body we're having a fruit smoothie. I tell my body we're going to get up at four. I tell my body we're going to exercise. He's, that's what he's saying that I'm going to tell my body. And, and I think what Paul was saying is if, if an athlete, think about this, would do this for a crown of wilted celery or, or, or old dry pine needles or even in our day and age, a medal or a trophy and even some fame that would last for a minute, why would not those who've been rescued by Jesus and are pursuing becoming more like Jesus do that for something that is eternal that can never be taken away from us? And here's the deal. Training to win is training for godliness. And I'm gonna tell you something. You gotta write this down, that godliness is not natural. 
it's not natural. That, that's why Paul said this, have nothing to do with godless myths, old wives' tales. Rather, train is where we get our word gymnasium, yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value that's good, right? But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for this life and the life to come. Aiden taught us that last week. The hope we have isn't, oh, I can't wait. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. This life and that life. Trustworthy saying, deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and strive because we've put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially those who believe. This word train is the, the word we get gymnasium. And here's literally what it means. So I did a little exploring. It means that the athlete would strip down naked to exercise or, or at minimum to a loincloth. So nothing encumbering me. And then they would work vigorously a program to get in prime physical shape. What Paul is saying is this, when it comes to running, there's a difference between a weekend casual runner and a runner training for a race. There's a difference between an armchair quarterback and a real NFL quarterback. And there is a difference between a cultural Christian and a true follower of Jesus. I want to just tell you something. You will not train for godliness by simply watching a sermon once in a while on YouTube. Please don't stop. Keep, keep tuning in. Tune in regularly. But you will not train for godliness simply by catching an, a, 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 an occasional sermon online. You will not train your kids for godliness by shipping them off to every VBS every summer or hoping that Power Kids or Grace Student Ministries are going to get them godly. The whole idea of training for godliness means what am I going to say yes to? What is my training program? Training happens when nobody's watching. There's no applause, no recognition. Training for godliness is putting into practice spiritual disciplines to hear from Jesus, time in his word, to, to be with Jesus in meditation, silence, and prayer, to be around the people of Jesus, to find a biblical community that I can attach to, become involved in, and to be doing the work of Jesus. Biblical, uh, training for godliness is an everyday decision to be intentional. What is your spiritual training program? What is your regiment? But it's not just saying yes to being intentional, but it's being willing to say no in order to say yes. Let me finish that. It's being willing to say no, to say yes. You see, there are a lot of people who, the problem is this, that there are so many things and they're not all bad things. A good thing, you ready? A good thing becomes a bad thing when it keeps me from the ultimate thing. And there are all kinds of people that I hear say this, I'm too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy to spend time in prayer. I'm too busy to get my kids to church. I'm too busy to get involved in a small group. I'm too busy to be involved in serving. I'm too busy to share with my neighbors. I'm too busy. And here's the deal. Paul's like, a good thing. And the reason I'm too busy is I'm golfing. Nothing wrong with golfing. It's a good thing. I'm too busy because I got my kids in every sporting event known to men. There's nothing wrong with that. It could be a good thing. Sports. But those good things, they become bad things because they keep from ultimate things. And so what he's saying is you gotta train yourself to be godly. You gotta have your eyes on the prize. But here's the, here's the third thing. I think you gotta be ready to do the hard. 
be ready to do the hard. Uh, he says this, the word do should be in there. Uh, he says, everyone who, ready, <clears throat> competes, competes in the games. That word competes is the Greek word, listen close to it, ago, ready, agonizomai, 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 what word do we get from that? You're right, you guessed it, agony, struggle. And Paul is saying, quit thinking this is going to be easy. I remember a Whiskey Rebellion, only race I ever ran. Man, I was so jacked up, had my merchandise, had my shirt, my water bottle, all said Whiskey Rebellion on it. Everybody at the starting line is jacked up, music's playing, big celebration. My, my new wife's over here, adrenaline's pumping him. Going, hey, sweetheart, you know, I had my new running shoes on. I was going to, man, I'm a runner. Man, I'm thinking, I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to, man, I'm going to bust out of here. They shot the gun off because they got us all hyped up. And, man, I was out the gate. And, and, and I got down the way, and I'm like, this is, this is no problem. And eventually, in the middle of that race, I hit a hill, a big hill. And I remember running up that hill, and it felt like it was a hill that never ended. And right when I hit that hill was when the sun was at its hottest. I remember feeling the heat from the sun. I remember feeling the, the incline from the hill and my legs started burning. This woman pushing a stroller past me and I remember getting discouraged. I thought if I could just find an ice cream shop to duck in, I'd duck in there, get a cab, take me to the finish line and that's the way we'll do this. We'll take a shortcut. Problem was there was no shortcuts to be found and neither is there a shortcut in the race of following Jesus. Guys, listen, becoming a Christian is easy. Saying yes to Jesus and what he did the hard work he did for me on the cross, for my sin, that's easy. But being a Christian isn't easy, nor did he ever say it would be. Jesus said this, John 16, 33, in this world you will have, here it is, trouble. He says in Luke 9, 23, he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross every day and follow me. The Apostle Paul knew this as well as anybody. He said this, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I got 40 lashes, minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger, rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, danger in the city, in the country, danger at sea, in the false, danger of false believers. I've labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger, thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all of the churches. He knew hard. Paul knew hard. <laughs> you know what I think, guys? I think we've taken the hard out of the Christian life. When you look at the best-selling books among Christians, they have to do with how to have my best life now. How to make more money God's way, which there's nothing wrong with making money. Uh, how to have peace, how to have tranquility, how, all those things. We want to know how to avoid pain. We want to do something with the least amount of sacrifice as possible. Yet what is ironic is we follow a leader who sacrificed his very life for our benefit. He laid down his life and he said sometimes it's going to be hard. I'm going to tell you something you won't always hear. You certainly aren't going to hear it many times from preachers on TV. That as a follower of Christ, you will have trouble. And following him will entail sacrifice and striving 
and struggling. There will be hills, there will be obstacles, there will be moments of opposition, there will be people in your life who make it harder, there will be times when you want to give up, and Paul says, be ready to do the hard. It's a race. Run the hill in the heat, even when it feels like everybody's passing you. Jesus said something sobering when he was teaching his disciples about the gospel. He said the gospel and the message of the gospel and God's word is like seed that's scattered on different kinds of soil. What's interesting is he gave four different kinds of soil, and it's only one of those soils where it came to a ripe harvest. The other three soils, the seed landed but didn't grow to a full harvest. One of those particular soils is interesting to me because it fell on rocky ground and it refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. They start well, but since they have no root, and it lasts a short time because when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. You see, I think what Paul was saying, what Jesus is teaching is be ready to, to do the hard. You will face trouble which makes me think this, that I gotta run my race, not someone else's. You gotta run your race, not someone else's. The writer of Hebrews says this, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. I need to run the race, but more specifically, I need to run my race. The moment I say yes to Jesus, I am in this race called the Christian race. And within that race, the Christian race, I believe this, there is a race marked out for us, specifically. Something God has called you to do. For some of you, that is at home with your children right now. For some of you, that is at school teaching those children. For some of you, that is at that factory working with those people. For some of you, that is living beside those people who you call neighbor. For some of you, that is the place where you work. For some of you, that is the place where you live. But he has people he's called us to influence, things he's asked us to do, ways he's asked us to impact our city, our town, gifts he's given us to build up the body of Christ. And the call is for you to run your race. And as you run your race, you will have challenges specific to your race, to the lane you're running in. I think of the story where Jesus tells Peter how his race is going to go. And it kind of ends with him dying for the sake of Christ. And Peter looks at John and he says to Jesus, well, what about him? Isn't that what we do? <laughs> what about his race? And Jesus says, I'll take care of his race, you run yours. I won't lie to you guys. Um, the race that I've been on, I haven't liked the last five weeks. The day before my wife and I were scheduled to go on vacation, I came down with some, some things that have caused excruciating pain. And we went on this trip and weren't able to do most of what we had planned in terms of hiking and biking, but we were able to be together. We had a great time together. But I won't lie to you, I spent some time looking around at other people and I thought, why me and not them? I remember being at the pool one specific day and 
God really challenged me because I remember thinking there was this guy who was maybe a year or two older than me and uh, obviously overweight, didn't take care of his body, and he was moving freely and looked like he had no problem at all and was able to get in the pool and splash around with others and whatever and whatnot. And I was walking like I was an 89-year-old man. You know, I was having a hard time. And I remember thinking, man, why in the world? He hasn't taken care of his body, and I do my best. And I, I had all those things like, God, why... But I remember my wife and I, eventually, he came over near where we were at, and we began talking to him and began asking him about his life. And he told us, yeah, this past year, my wife died of cancer. And all of a sudden, his race came into clear focus. And then a little later in the conversation, he said, yeah, I'm raising my granddaughter because a few years ago, my daughter died of an overdose. Every time I passed that guy moving limber while I was limping along, I thought to myself, he's on a race. <laughs> He's running a race. You see, I got to run in my lane, the race marked out for me, with its opportunities and with its challenges, which leads me to this, that I want to run my race and I don't want to quit till I'm done. Don't quit till you're done. Guess what? You're done when you're dead. The same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians wrote 2 Timothy and the same Paul who was younger in 1 Corinthians is now old and at the end of his life. And he says, I'm already poured out like a drink offering. I just poured my life out. And my time for departure is near. I'm getting ready to die. I have fought the good fight. I guess very graphic words. I have finished the race using the same analogies at the end of his life. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on the day and not only to me, but to those who long for his appearing. Christian hope is not sitting around, fretting and worrying, bemoaning what's going on in our culture, reading left behind books, just waiting for Jesus to rescue us. Christian hope is running at the beginning, running through the hard middle, and running through the tape at the end. One of the people I met while we were away, I was sitting uh, one day, at a beach and probably one of the most extroverted guys I ever met in my life came by and uh, he, he just started talking to Jennifer and I and probably was there for 45 minutes or so and uh, he said I'm a farmer North Carolina I said well that's interesting how long you been a farmer he said only a few years he said I retired from Goodyear worked in North Carolina and Goodyear and he retired and then he went into farming and I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, you retired from one job and went into another. He said, you know something I really don't believe in retirement. And I said, what do you mean? He didn't claim to be a follower of Christ or anything, but I thought it was interesting what he said. He said, I don't believe in retirement. I believe in reassignment. You see, even though you may retire from a vocation doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan and wants to use you. And he's done when we're dead. <laughs> he's done when we're dead. I think to myself of 1968 Olympics marathon runner John Stephen Aquari. He's from Tanzania. Started out the marathon and 79 runners began the race. He got partway through and the altitude began taking its effects and he really struggled because he didn't train in that kind of altitude. And then halfway through the race, the runners began jockeying with each other and they collided and they got him and they really injured his knee and his hip popped out of joint. He landed on his shoulder. He was all banged up, but he got back up and he continued to run. 
John Stephen Aquari was the last place finisher in the 1968 Mexico City Marathon. He was last place out of a group of 17 that finished. Remember, 79 started. The winner of that marathon finished in about two hours and 20 minutes. He finished in about three hours and 25 minutes. A TV crew heard what was happening as there was this small crowd left in the stadium clapping as last place John Stephen Aquari came across the finish line. And so they ran to capture the footage and then they interviewed him and they asked him why he continued running after all that had happened to him. He said this, I never thought of stopping. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. I love that. For the follower of Christ, Jesus did not travel from heaven to earth to secure my forgiveness and my place in the family of God so I could simply start the race. But he did so so I could finish the race. The older I get, the less I'm impressed. The less I'm impressed with passion at the beginning and the more I'm impressed with faithfulness to the end. My mom and dad had a saying in my bedroom that I woke up to every day, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Run to win the prize. Can I ask you a question? Are you even in the race? The way to get in the race is to say yes to the one who paid the price for you to be a part of the race, the family of God, the race of the forgiven. You can do that right now, wherever you're at, driving, sitting at McDonald's in your living room. You can say, yes, Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner. You're the savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins in my place, that you were buried and rose again. And today, this moment, I'm confessing you as savior and Lord of my life. If you prayed that, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, there's a lot of you who would say, I'm a Christian, but can I ask you this? How are you running the race? Are you running aimlessly? You got your eye on the prize. What is your training like? Are you hoping a service here or there are gonna train you for godliness? It won't. What is your Monday through Saturday training like when nobody's watching, there's no applause, there's nobody? What is that like? For some of you, you're on a steep hill. I get it. And you wanna give up and there's people passing you and it feels like and you don't know. And he said this, he said, you wanna follow me, take up your cross every day, follow me. In this world, you have trouble. Keep your eye on the prize, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured his cross, scorned at shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You run in your lane, and you run until you're done, and you're done when he calls you home. God, I pray that you'd help us to run well, to become more like Jesus till we run across the finish line into the arms of Jesus that we might hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.